And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Thursday, April 27th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, a five-decade financial burden known as the widow's tax is finally gone, what that means for military-connected families. Plus, CBP puts data about forced labor online for everybody to see. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the Homeland Security Department looks to address both the promise and the perils of, you guessed it, artificial intelligence. It's establishing a high-level group to focus on how AI can be applied across the department's many missions. For the latest, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Another study group about artificial intelligence, Justin? Yeah, you got it. You know, ChatGBT has advanced here pretty quickly this year. It's caught the attention attention of a lot of folks, and it's caught the attention of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas as well. In an April 20th memo, he directs the establishment of an AI task force. It's going to be led by the Undersecretary for Science and Technology at the department and DHS's Chief Information Officer. And it will address the many ways in which this AI revolution will alter the threat landscape and potentially augment the, quote unquote, arsenal of tools that DHS has. And so this is also coming at the same time that Mayorkas has directed a 90 day sprint focused on countering threats from China. And so you can kind of see how there are these two new high level focuses at the department coming together. Secretary Mayorkas spoke a little bit more about that at the Council on Foreign Relations event last Friday. Countering the multifaceted threat posed by the PRC, learning from major cyber incidents, and harnessing the power of AI to advance our security will draw on the entirety of the capabilities and expertise the 260,000 personnel of DHS bring to bear every single day. Gosh, I'd say ChatGPT is the biggest thing since fondue pots of the 1970s. So in the meantime, what are some specific applications for AI that they're envisioning at DHS? Well, the most specific and obvious application so far is screening cargo at ports of entry and at the border. Mayorkas has directed the task force to specifically focus on how it can be used in that sense. He's also directed them to specifically look at how AI could better detect fentanyl shipments. Obviously, that's a huge issue that DHS is needing to address here right now. And actually, Customs and Border Protection is in the midst of a major acquisition along these lines already. It released a solicitation for anomaly detection algorithms to be used as part of its non-intrusive inspection systems. That went out earlier this month, so CBP is accepting proposals today. CBP Chief Information Officer Sonny Bagwala explained the agency's approach in a little bit more detail at an April 21st AFCIA Bethesda breakfast. So all those millions and millions of packages coming in, we want AIML to tell us, you know, which container to look at. We just did the largest ever bust of uh, fentanyl that we just announced. And that's a combination of agents and officers who are brilliant, canines, some modeling and other stuff and some technology that we're using. But we need AIML so that the agent and officer, while they're and I've been in, I've been the front lines at all these places. They can see that they just need an assist. 
And by the way, right after this interview, we will hear from Eric Choi. He's the executive director for Trade, Remedy, and Law Enforcement at CBP. More on how they're using AI to detect what might have forced labor content in there. Okay, so shipments, that's one area. Where else does DHS think maybe AI will work? It's hard to think of where it couldn't, I guess. Sure. Well, actually, along those those lines, Mayorkas has also directed the task force to examine how AI could be used as part of digital forensic tools to help rescue victims of online child sexual exploitation and abuse and to actually identify and apprehend the perpetrators of those crimes. And this comes as DHS has also announced a new Homeland Security mission combating crimes of exploitation and protecting victims that came out as part of the Quadrennial Homeland Security Review release last week. So using AI as part of these digital forensic tools is another area, concrete area, where DHS is going to be looking. And then finally, uh, Mayorkas asks the task force to also look at the impact of AI on the ability to secure critical infrastructure. And this might be looking at the flip side of how AI could be a threat to a lot of different homeland security areas. All right. And then at the top, we mentioned the potential pitfalls of artificial intelligence and homeland security is thinking about those too. Yeah, that's right. The the cybersecurity and infrastructure security agency is the DHS component that's responsible for, you know, securing critical infrastructure from threats. And CISA director Jen Easterly came out earlier this month with some pretty strong comments and a stark warning about the speed at which AI is developing. We are hurtling forward in a way that I think is not the right level of responsibility. Implementing AI capabilities in production without any legal barriers, without any regulation. And frankly, I'm not sure that we are thinking about the downstream safety consequences of how fast this is moving. And so I have been trying hard to think about how we can implement certain controls around how this technology starts to proliferate in a very accelerated way. I think this is the biggest issue that we're going to deal with this century. Yeah, I wonder if China feels the same constraints, but how does this all knit together? I guess getting back to what my orca said, they're going to focus on this in some integrated way at DHS? Yeah, that's right. I mean, this task force is supposed to bring everyone together, all those different perspectives from the practitioners who want to potentially use it at the border to folks who are like Jen Easterly, who are a little bit more concerned about the the broad societal impacts that AI could have. And, you know, the task force has been directed within 45 days to kind of lay out a concept of operations for how it's going to move forward. So that, that'll come at the end of May. And then every 60 days thereafter, Mayorkas wants a progress report on what the task force is doing and any other pertinent AI initiatives that kind of promulgate across DHS. So this is going to be something that's going to be a big high-level focus for DHS for a while to come here. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. All right, you got it, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, as we promised, Customs and Border Protection is putting data about forced labor online for everybody to see as it tries to stop shipments of products using forced labor. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. 
Among the uglier mass human rights violations going on daily in the world, forced labor imposed on the Uyghur minority by China. Congress, in the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, gave U.S. Customs and Border Protection the job of gathering and publicizing this forced labor where it exists in worldwide industrial supply chains. With where the agency is in this effort, we turn to the Executive Director for Trade Remedy Law Enforcement in CBP's Office of Trade, Eric Choi. Mr. Choi, good to have you with us. Great to join you. Thanks, Tom. And what exactly is CBP's job in this law and generally trying to stop the fruits of forced labor from entering manufacturers' supply chains? CBP has already had the uh, requirements to stop the importation of goods produced with forced labor coming into the United States. This was already established in federal statute under the Tariff Act, was recently under the Trade Facilitation Trade Enforcement Act in 2016 really unbound CBP's authorities to prevent the importation or the entry into U.S. commerce of goods produced with forced labor into the United States. And with the passage of the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act in late 2021, it created a, a rebuttable presumption which presumed that goods produced whole or in part from the Xinjiang region of China is created with forced labor, therefore then prevents the entry. Uh, and so CBP's responsibilities under the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act is to figure out which goods are coming from whole or in part from the Xinjiang region of China and to prevent their entry into the commerce. And what are the types of goods that tend to come from that region? We know that as far as manufacturing goes from the Xinjiang region of China, that the PRC has moved a significant amount of energy intensive as well as dirty industries that really go towards leveraging raw materials and kind of creating those inputs that are used in downstream manufacturing production processes that ultimately end up in the goods that are further manufactured either in China or in third countries that end up in those goods that we consume here in the United States. And principally, if you think about those types of industries that are energy intensive, that or take a significant amount of agricultural footprint. Um, you're looking at you know, electronic inputs, apparel, textiles, footwear, as well as uh, industrial manufacturing materials. Right, so it could be like metal ingots or lead bricks, that kind of thing. That's correct. You know, aluminum, cotton. Uh, we know that under the UFLPA that there were specific commodities that were considered high priority. Those things that are specific in the statute identified cotton, polysilicon-based products, as well as tomatoes and tomato products. And recently, CBP staged a forced labor technical expo to show off this. What happened at the expo? Who went and what could they see there? And there are a significant amount of stakeholders when it comes to enforcing the prohibition on goods produced for labor. Certainly, first and foremost is industry, the manufacturers, the importers that are importing these goods. Then also there are our stakeholders across the federal interagency, our stakeholders in the legislative branch, as well as civil society that all kind of have somewhat of a stake with regards to how we can all work together towards identifying those goods and preventing those goods from coming into the United States. And so the Tech Expo was really designed for industry to industry engagement. We know that in the face of force saber enforcement since 2016, a significant industry has been growing to help industry identify and exercise due diligence within their supply chain. You know, these are leveraging things such as artificial intelligence, machine learning, as well as just looking at the types of data and the intelligence that's out there that could help companies do this type of due diligence in their own supply chains. And so ultimately, from an agency perspective, when we look at those goods potentially produced with force saber coming to the country, our hope is that companies in their own due diligence identify where those risks are overseas. And so this Tech Expo was really to showcase and give an opportunity for industry to showcase the types of technologies that are being developed, types of methodologies, but then present that back to industry 
to the trade stakeholders so they can conduct that due diligence. But there's also a significant piece in this is that understanding the gross atrocities that are occurring and why industry should care. And so that's why we had members from the federal interagency, as well as members from the Hill come and talk to the trade about how they can exercise due diligence and why the Uyghur Force Labor Prevention Act is so important and why working together uh, to prevent these goods from coming uh, into the United States is so important. We're speaking with Eric Choi. He's executive director for Trade Remedy Law Enforcement in the Office of Trade at U.S. Customs and Border Protection. And the supply chains themselves can be complicated because a lot of the materials you mentioned have distributors or they might be sold directly online through agents that's hard to identify through Amazon and so forth. And then industrial goods, you know, they have distributors and sometimes multi-level distribution. Does that complicate the end buyer, you know, knowing that this is not something they should be buying? It is incredibly complicated. Have we seen how diversified and multinational supply chains have become over the last couple of decades? It is very difficult. And we know that from an agency perspective, we know that exercising this due diligence, not only from industry's perspective, but also across the federal interagency, that it's a difficult task. And that's why we're really focused on working together to do this. Identifying where the risk exists in supply chains is a significant part of this. Once goods are already presented for entry at one of our 328 ports of entry, it's technically too late. And so knowing where these risks are, knowing what the resources are available and how that due diligence could be exercised before companies make purchasing decisions, before goods ever hit the water is the important part. And so doing the due diligence to understand how the specific inputs within specific goods at a specific tiers within the supply chain is really important. And now more than ever, not just for forced labor and social due diligence, but just also for good business practices, understanding how to create predictability within supply chains and understanding when goods will be delivered on time is important for business. So this is a collective kind of effort working together to work on forced labor due diligence, but also just good business practices. And you also have a dashboard now online. I'm looking at it now that tells a lot about shipments and what types of materials could be coming from that region of China. How is that developed and who do you expect to be tuning into that dashboard? So as I mentioned before, there's a significant amount of stakeholders that are really interested in how the enforcement is going. One, it helps to provide predictability uh, with regards to what types of goods and commodities are potentially being made from these supply chains that are linked back to the Xinjiang region of China. This dashboard is also CBP's commitment to provide as much transparency to the trade and to all the various stakeholders for this enforcement under the Uyghur Force Labor Prevention Act. We are aggregating this data quarterly to provide awareness of how the enforcement is going, what goods are impacted, and what the ultimate outcome of those goods as those supply chains are being reviewed. And so we're hoping that the dashboard itself will provide insight to all the various stakeholders to make good decisions in their own. And China has a lot of regions. It's a really big country geographically. How do we know that they're not having things produced by the Uyghurs in the forced labor areas and simply shipped and date stamped or whatever from somewhere across China and leaving the country from that port? That is a significant challenge. Again, the way that how diversified and multinational these supply chains are, understanding where the risk is and where the risk may reside within any supply chain is, is the first step. And the good news is that there's a significant amount of resources out there for industry and for all stakeholders to know where the risks may begin, right? And once we understand where those risks are, then we can make conscious decisions of how we structure our supply chain. So across the federal interagency, you have 
and it's not just the forced labor that's occurring uh, in the Xinjiang region of China, but also broadly globally around the world. There's a Department of Labor's list of goods, which identifies countries and the goods and the commodities that are suspected of being made or produced with forced labor and child labor. Department of State has a traffic in, in persons report that it publishes annually every year that talks about and categorizes and scores countries based on their human trafficking efforts and where the conditions of human trafficking and forced labor may be. But then there's also significant resources from civil society and academia that are actively looking at these conditions, They're actively looking at the Xinjiang region of China that provide detailed information to anyone that's interested of where these risks exist. And do you get cooperation from the large manufacturers that have the resources to take on this challenge, the Apples, the, the General Motors, you know, the Nikes, the Boeings, those types of companies? For sure, over the last uh, several years, uh, since CBP has really stepped up its enforcement on forced labor together with the Department of Homeland Security, we've seen a significant response, not only globally around the world from like-minded partners and countries, uh, but also from industry. And so we see a significant shifts uh, in supply chains where large companies, but also concerned companies are making changes to their supply chains and, and making changes to where they source goods. And to that vein, with all the different capabilities and technologies that were showcased at our technology expo. We know that there are companies that are using these technologies and using these methodologies to inform their decision making. And, and we're seeing it. We're seeing changes. Eric Choi is executive director for Trade Remedy Law Enforcement in the Office of Trade at U.S. Customs and Border Protection. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. It's a pleasure. And we'll post this interview along with a link to that dashboard at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, how come so few federal employees actually are TSP millionaires? But first, a five-decade financial burden known as the widow's tax is finally gone. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Congress in 2020 repealed something known as the Survivor Benefit Plan Dependency and Indemnity Compensation Offset, better known as the Widow's Tax. It disappeared after a three-year phase-out ending earlier this year. That move opened up what my next guest calls a once-in-a-generation opportunity for veterans. Mike Meese is president of the American Armed Forces Mutual Aid Association, and he joins me now. Mike, good to have you back. Uh, great to be here, Tom. So the SBPDIC offset, what was it and what happened to it? Well, uh, it is a mouthful, but uh, what we're talking about is the benefits for the survivors, the spouses of military retirees. And right now there's over 2 million people that are military retirees. And so presumably most of them have 2 million spouses and your military retired pay ends when you pass away. Congress passed a law back in 1972 allowing a survivor benefit plan so that you can pay part of your retired pay in so that your widow or widower would receive 55% of your pay, and that's the survivor benefit plan. The challenge was that if you also died of something that was related to your military service, you would also be eligible for dependence indemnity compensation from the Veterans Administration. And 
Congress, the previous law, would offset that dollar for dollar. So that was called the widow's tax, where Congress thought that it wasn't fair that people who died of a service-connected condition would also then have their retired annuity reduced. Got it. So the dependency and indemnity compensation came from VA, and that would offset the survivor benefit plan that would otherwise come from the Defense Department. Exactly. In the Defense Authorization Act of 2020, Congress recognized that that was not fair. And so, as you mentioned, phased that out over three years so that now the survivor benefit plan is actually more valuable than it was before because it used to have an offset. Some people some people may not have opted in to taking the survivor benefit plan because they thought they would get a disability payment. Now that you can get both the disability payment if you die of a service-connected condition and your retiree benefits, people have the opportunity if they want to for a one-time ability to opt into the survivor benefit plan, but it's only available to military retirees during this year, the year 2023, and they have to apply to it. And I can describe that a little bit more. Yeah. What do they specifically have to do then? Well, what any military retiree would have to go to the defense finance and accounting website, dfast.mil, and it's easy there. Click on the retiree. And then on the bottom left-hand side, there's a big tab that says SBP 2023 open season. And it explains the instructions there. It is a little bit complicated. Let me just explain it in case anybody is interested in it. If you have not opted in to the survivor benefit plan and you want to do that, then you click on that link and you fill out a form. Uh, Of course, the government has forms. And send that into DFAS. DFAS will then tell you how much you would have to pay in to buy into survivor benefit plan. Again, had you opted in as you retired from the military, you would have been paying up to six and a half percent of your retired pay. So they will calculate what would six and a half percent of your retired pay be for the, let's say you retired 20 years ago for the last 20 years, how much would you have to pay in a lump sum, or they'll allow you to pay it over 12 months so that you can then have that opportunity to buy into the survivor benefit plan. Right. So the result will be that if you render your spouse a widow or widower, that person would then continue to get the full benefit of your pay had you lived. Almost. They would end up getting 55% of your retired pay. So if your retired pay is, let's say, $1,000, just to make the math easy, they would get a check for $550 for the remainder of their life. We're speaking with Mike Meese. He is president of the American Armed Forces Mutual Aid Association. So in other words, you can retroactively get that coverage for this one-time period. That's right. Normally, you have to make an irrevocable decision at the time of retirement. And so people who opted out and didn't choose SPP may find themselves 20 years later in a different circumstance. Let me just describe to you what those circumstances may be. You know, 20 years ago, somebody may have said, well, gee, my wife, if they're a male, my wife is substantially older than me, or maybe she has more illnesses than me, and I don't want to opt in because I don't think that would make sense. Well, you may have had a health condition, or you may have some reason why you may think that you may predecease your spouse earlier, 
And so consequently, your health conditions may have changed from the time that you made that decision in retirement. And again, when you made that decision, it was an irrevocable decision. Now, this is the one time in your lifetime where you may be able to revisit that decision, which may be applicable for some retired military members so that they can opt in now. And how does the dependency and indemnity compensation payment, how does that figure into the whole equation? How do you get that from VA? Yeah, it's a it's a very good question. Dependent indemnity compensation is paid to you if you die either on active duty or from a service-connected condition. And so obviously dying on active duty, it's obvious the VA will continue to pay that to you. But we end up nowadays, uh, several people are dying who served in the Vietnam War. And uh, if they served at any point in Vietnam, the VA presumes that they were exposed to Agent Orange, and there's a list of 13 or now up to 16 conditions that are presumptively related to Agent Orange, everything from dementia to prostate cancer to other diseases. So if you die and those diseases contributed to your death, that is just as if you had died in Vietnam or on active duty and your spouse would be eligible for tax-free dependent indemnity compensation from the VA, which right now is valued at, uh, or it's $1,563 per month, and that goes up every year by a cost of living increase. Right. So that could also potentially apply to the burn pit people from Iraq and Afghanistan. Exactly. My view is burn pits are going to be my generation's equivalent of Agent Orange exposure. You know, I I was over in Iraq and Afghanistan for about 32 months, and uh, you can hear some of the hoarseness in my voice. I have no idea whether this is going to get worse, but I probably will for myself or my contemporaries. And so that's why that DIC is very important. And if you have survivor benefit plan, your spouse is going to be eligible for both SBP from DFAS and the DIC from the VA. So in your case, it's not that box of Dutch masters every month, but it's <laughs> no. something from over there. Yeah, so this exactly. and so the year uh, getting back to the uh, applying for that benefit under the uh, survivor benefit plan, the year ends this calendar year. Uh, that's exactly right. And it's a two step process. You apply to the DFAS, the Defense Finance and Accounting Service. They do the calculations. They send that back to you. And then you have to buy in either in a lump sum or paid over 12 months. In many cases, people, again, in order to get this, you would be getting retired pay anyway. People will have this deducted from their retired pay so that uh, it'll be a financial crunch this year, but it may provide substantial benefits for your spouse. Again, if and only if the military member dies prior to the spouse. Right. And do we know what a payment might look like? Say someone is going to retire is just to pick a mid-grade there, lieutenant colonel. Yeah, a a lieutenant colonel, a lot depends upon how long ago you retired. It's amazing when you think about how much of the retired pay is. We had one individual who retired about 30 years ago, so they've missed 30 years of payments. That payment's going to be over $100,000 that they would have to make to be in there. On the other hand, if their spouse outlives them by five or six or seven years, the spouse will get well over that amount back in the payments. Now, if you only retired five years ago, obviously there's much less to pay in, and then they would just take the six and a half percent out of your retired pay going forward. So like any insurance type of 
decision. There is a risk management process here. There's a, I mean, it's, it's insurance as much as a benefit in some ways. Yeah, that's exactly right. In fact, here at AFMA, we provide whole life insurance and that kind of thing. We'd love to compare it with insurance. The big difference with the survivor benefit plan annuity is it increases based upon Congress's authorization of COLA going forward for retirees. Whereas if you got an insurance plan that, again, I would be happy to sell you, if that's a $500,000 policy, that'll be a $500,000 policy even 20 years from now. It will not go up with inflation, which is one of the advantages and why many people select the survivor benefit plan if their family is financially dependent upon them. And by the way, selling whole life, that makes you almost like the last of the Mohicans. (laughs) There's not a lot to do that. What we really do is focus on survivor benefits. So that's why talking with you and advising people so that if anybody does have any questions, they can go to our website, AFMA.com, or give us a call. That's A-A-F-M-A-A.com, and we can uh, answer any questions they have. Or if they've got a financial advisor who knows military issues, we definitely recommend that people talk with a qualified financial advisor who can give them the right kinds of analysis that they need for this. Mike Meese is president of the American Armed Forces Mutual Aid Association. Thanks so much. Great. Thank you, Tom. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, how come so few federal employees actually are TSP millionaires? This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. It varies with the stock market, but about 1% of thrift savings plans have more than a million dollars in them. Most so-called TSP millionaires have been working for decades. My next guest thinks the millionaire roster should be five times as big as it is. We get more from financial consultant and retired federal manager, Abe Grungold. Abe, so you're bemoaning the lack of TSP millionaires, huh? Yes, I believe there should be many, many more TSP millionaires. And I want every federal employee and retiree has the opportunity to be a TSP millionaire. And with today's salaries, that should be achievable during a federal career. But I believe there are two traits that federal employees and retirees have that causes them not to reach that pinnacle level. All right. I was going to say there might be three traits, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. But what are your two traits? Mine are procrastination and fear. Federal employees procrastinate contributing to the TSP. They tend to focus on things which are important to them, such as I want to pay off my school loans. I want to save for a house. I want to travel or save for a wedding. But they need to get the idea of contributing into their TSP as part of their DNA when they're federal employees. This should begin the first day of employment. And does not first day of employment, though, enroll you automatically in the TSP? Yes. Federal employees who now, as new employees, they have to do a mandatory contribution, but that contribution is only 
5%, which entitles them to the 5% matching that the government provides. That is an excellent start. But during my career, and I was a low-level employee in the beginning years, I contributed to the maximum of which I could afford, which it was at least 10%. Now, if a federal employee contributes 10% of their salary, along with the 5% match, during a 20 to 25-year federal career, there's an excellent chance for them to become a TSP millionaire if and only if they can overcome their fear. And the fear comes from only investing in the G fund. If you're going to be a federal employee and you only invest in the G fund, the likelihood of you being a TSP millionaire is going to be slim. And many reasons that federal employees do not invest aggressively with their thrift savings plan is they don't want to see even $1 decrease in the balance of their account. They feel that the other accounts are too volatile, or they keep thinking that there's going to be a recession. So that causes them to not invest aggressively. We're speaking with Abe Grungold, retired federal manager, now a financial consultant. So you have to balance living with savings, and even the most aggressive counselors for savings will say, don't forget to live a little bit while you're working, but it's a matter of making sure that that baseline is always there no matter what, sounds like. Yes, look, I always enjoyed myself when I was a federal employee. I traveled, I played golf, I did all the normal things that a person would do, but I had it in my DNA to think, pay yourself first, contribute as much as you can afford to the thrift savings plan and invest as aggressively as you can tolerate. Now, to become a TSP millionaire, it's somewhat of a simple formula. It's maximizing your contributions, invest as aggressively as you can tolerate, and time. The more time that you spend as a federal employee, that will help you to achieve your goal. Well, you can probably calculate if you say a 5% return on investment on average and you know how much you're contributing every year, there must be a formula that can say this is the date on which you'll hit that million-dollar mark? Well, you do have to apply a percentage for growth in addition to your contributions. And I always picked a conservative 7%. And if you contribute for 20 to 25 years, 7%, you can hit it. And you could have a salary of a minimum of $50,000, $60,000. Now, the TSP has a history, 35-year history of experience with their investments. So you will know the track record of how they will perform. But there is a critical factor and why there are not more TSP millionaires. And that critical factor is that federal agencies are concerned about employee retention. This is what they talk about, employee retention, but they are not educating the employees on this very important benefit. 
Unfortunately, the federal employee is responsible to learn and educate themselves on their thrift saving plan benefit. Right. So in other words, the expression of the value of the TSP, of the long-term investment strategy in it, could be a retention tool for federal employees. Absolutely, Tom. When I was introduced to the TSP in 1987-88, I I can't remember offhand, but I remember that presentation that they made. And after seeing the slides and the charts, a light bulb went off in my head that said, I can achieve this. I was only in my second year as a federal employee, but having an accounting and a finance background, I knew I could achieve this. So federal agencies need to educate. They provide their employees with so much training in so many different areas for them to do their job. But if they want to retain these valuable employees, they're going to have to educate them on how important their thrift saving benefit is. And what is the significance of that million dollar mark? I mean, everyone subscribes to it. I subscribe to it. And a million, even in this day and age, if you have that in your savings, can throw off a pretty good supplement to your income with those required minimum withdrawals. Yes. The million dollar goal is basically one part of three parts of your retirement. The first part is the first annuity. The second part is Social Security. And the third part is your thrift saving plan. So, you know, I used to say it's a three-legged stool that you should be sitting comfortably when you reach retirement. Now, if you have additional savings, it's a four-legged stool. Due to the change of the federal retirement system from the CSRS program to the FERS program, employees have that responsibility to save a significant portion of their salary to fulfill their retirement needs, where the CSRS program, you didn't have to do that as a federal employee. Right. So then for those that have not been saving at the maximum they can afford or the maximum allowed, as you say, 10% plus that 5% match, it's never too late though, is it? No, it's not too late. It's never too late. I have you know, many clients who really just start thinking about saving for their retirement in their 40s and 50s and then say, you know, I should be maximizing my contribution. But there are many employees who are thinking about it early on, as they should. But it is so important for the agency to have training for their employees, along with ethics training along with security in the workplace training, along with threat management training, to have that important training, give it to the employee each year as a retention tool for each agency to say, look, if you work 25 years with the government, you can become a TSP millionaire and you can have a wonderful career at the same time. Yeah, I can see the name on the pamphlet now, How to Be a Millionaire Without Really Trying. Exactly, Tom. It takes a little effort, just a little effort on the part of the employee. But, you know, unfortunately, employees today do not think long term. They're not thinking about retirement. They're not thinking about long term care needs. They're not thinking about Social Security. These issues never come to mind 
when you're right out of college and you hit the ground running in, in a federal position, you're just thinking about how can I do a great job and advance my career. Abe Gungold is a retired federal manager. He's now a financial consultant in Florida. Hey, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you very much, Tom. Thank you for having me on. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Supreme Court is considering whether a former mail carrier declining to work on Sundays, the Christian Sabbath, put an undue hardship on the Postal Service. The agency delivers mail six days a week, but reached a deal with Amazon a decade ago to start delivering packages on Sunday. The case has far-reaching implications, though, on how far any employer must go to meet religious accommodations. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman has more. Attorneys for a former letter carrier are telling the Supreme Court the Postal Service didn't go far enough to accommodate his religious beliefs when it scheduled him to work Sundays. That case may soon decide whether USPS or any other employer should face a higher bar to demonstrate whether a religious accommodation request would become an undue hardship for its business. Employers under current law only need to prove a more than de minimis or minor cost to demonstrate that a religious accommodation would be an undue hardship. The legal team for Gerald Groff, a former rural letter carrier in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, says employers should only be able to claim an undue burden if a religious accommodation requires significant difficulty or expense. That's the same standard for disability accommodations under the Americans with Disabilities Act. Groff's attorney, Aaron Street, says it doesn't make sense for there to be two different standards for disability and workplace accommodations in the workplace. Employers are already applying a web of accommodations under a variety of statutes. These employers know how to apply the significant difficulty and expense standard, and it will not be a problem for them to apply that to religious employees, including as to morale issues. And the government today has not given us any reason why religious employees should have less accommodation than all of those other individuals protected under the other statutes that share the same reasonable accommodation, and undue hardship framework. Solicitor General Elizabeth Perlager, representing USPS, told the court that when Groff refused to deliver packages on Sundays, it created a direct concrete burden on other carriers who had to pick up the slack. And his absences created direct concrete burdens on other carriers who had to stay on their shifts longer to get the mail delivered. That caused problems with the timely delivery of mail, and it actually produced employee retention problems with one carrier quitting and another carrier transferring and another carrier filing a union grievance. That is an undue hardship under any reasonable standard. Prologger says some of Groff's coworkers felt overburdened by his accommodation and left or filed complaints. This was not some minor inconvenience to the Postal Service. The requested accommodation here had manifold impacts both on co-workers and on USPS. Street said the government's de minimis standard allows employers to deny accommodations that fall far short of any meaning of undue hardship. He also said that having different standards for religious and disability accommodations puts a burden on employees. The government believes undue hardship arises whenever there is lost efficiency, weekly payment of premium wages, or denial of a coworker's shift preference. Thus, under the government's test, a diabetic employee could receive snack breaks under Title VII, uh, under the ADA, but not prayer breaks under Title VII, for that might cause lost efficiency. An employee could receive weekly leave for pregnancy checkups, but not to attend mass, for that might require denying a coworker's shift preference or paying premium wages. There's no reason religious workers should receive lesser protection than those covered by other accommodation statutes. 
Groff started working as a rural carrier associate in April 2012. When he started that job, USPS didn't need him or his co-workers to work Sundays. That changed in 2013 when USPS reached a deal with Amazon to deliver packages on Sundays. By May 2016, the National Rural Letter Carriers Association reached an agreement requiring all rural carrier assistants to be available to work Sundays and deliver Amazon packages. Groff says his postmaster at first tried to cover his Sunday shifts, but that arrangement only worked out for about a year. Groff resigned from his job in 2019, several years after USPS management disciplined him for not showing up for his scheduled shifts on Sundays. Lower courts have ruled in favor of USPS, but during oral arguments, Justice Clarence Thomas expressed some concern about employers having to meet two different standards for religious and disability accommodations. It seems a little odd that under the ADA, we have the same term, undue hardship. And I know there's a definition of undue hardship there, but it seems as though that there would at least be some comparison to the undue hardship uh, under ADA and there'd be some similarity with Title VII. Title VII of the Civil Rights Act prohibits employment discrimination based on race, color, religion, sex, and national origin. Justices will also have to determine if USPS sufficiently demonstrated an undue burden in this case by showing Groff's requested accommodation shifted more work onto his co-workers. Several justices tried to quantify an undue hardship in terms of the financial cost to the employer, but several justices, including Justice Sonia Sotomayor, asked whether morale issues brought on by short staffing should also factor into an undue burden standard. Anyone who's worked seeing delivery people work during the holidays, if you pay any attention, most of them are exhausted at the end of their day. It costs to run extra hours, and it costs to do more work. And that cost can't be quantified always in money. Street told the justices that decreased morale to the point that employees quit would be an example of a religious accommodation having a concrete effect on the workforce. It's not enough to have morale issues. It's not enough to just have grumbling. But if the employer becomes shorthanded or the employees become so overburdened that they can't carry out their job, then that has an effect on the business. It doesn't need to be quantifiable in dollars and cents. Prologger said that during the Postal Service's year-end peak holiday season, Groff's Sunday shifts mostly fell on one other carrier or sometimes the postmaster. She said the postmaster also tried to call other regional post offices trying to find volunteers for each Sunday that Groff was scheduled to work. And so once you start taking away their weekend off, that led to the unrest and the disruption of the workflow that we saw here. And when petitioner was absent, they had to stay on their routes longer and later, going out after dark for routes that were unfamiliar to get those packages delivered. That counts as real-world impact and undue hardship under any reasonable standard. The court's liberal wing, including Justice Elena Kagan, said plaintiffs face a high bar in overturning longstanding legal precedent over statutory non-constitutional matters. And this has been, you know, for decades, this has been the rule. Congress has had that opportunity to change it. Congress has not done so. You can count on like a finger how many times we have overruled a statutory ruling in that context. Conservative justices, including Justice Amy Coney Barrett, expressed concern about employees' religious freedoms, but also showed concern about any kind of standard that would be too limiting for employers to stay in business or meet customers' demands. 
I mean, a contextual inquiry would say we might treat the rural grocery store differently than we would treat Amazon, or, or maybe our you know, financially floundering post office gets treated differently than Amazon. But circumstances can change. The context can change. And why can't the employer come back and say, well, I've been accommodating you by paying someone else a dollar extra an hour or time and a half or whatever it is. But things have changed and I can no longer offer you that accommodation. Jory Heckman, Federal News Network. Check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin. 